Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. This is another in our ongoing series, Sentencing Commission Confidential where we explore issues and questions that come up pretty frequently about the United States Sentencing Commission, and in particular, its relation to organizational compliance and ethics. One question that comes up pretty frequently when I speak on the sentencing guidelines is a question about when might the guidelines be amended again, the organizational guidelines that affect corporate compliance. And then probably an important follow-up to that is what might get amended First, just quickly, I want to go over the amendment process. So for those of you that aren't familiar with how the Sentencing Commission works, we'll get a sense of generally how these things get on the agenda to begin with, and then uh, proceed from being on the agenda to being proposed amendments. The Sentencing Commission is on an annual cycle for amendments of the sentencing guidelines. And we now find ourselves in March of 2017, And we're really getting close to the end of the annual cycle for the Sentencing Commission, which really runs from May to May. What happens in May is the amendments that have been debated and proposed for the prior year uh, get sent to Congress the beginning of May. And if Congress doesn't act, those proposed amendments to the sentencing guidelines become part of the sentencing guidelines. So we're coming up close to the end of the cycle and the beginning of a new cycle. And usually what happens in May or June of each year is that the Sentencing Commission will propose priorities. And that's sort of at the beginning of the planning stages. Priorities or proposed uh, issues that they might look into and perhaps research that the commission will undertake over the following year. There are many proposed priorities that are carryover from year to year. For example, the Commission is engaged in several multi-year studies into issues such as the effects and the after effects of the Booker decision years ago. And the commission's also engaged in currently in a multi-year examination of mandatory minimums and the effect that mandatory minimum punishment has on sentencing. Whatever those priorities might be, the commission will publish those again in May or June and then leave open a public comment period for any interested parties out there, whether they're organizations or individuals, to contact the commission and provide public comment on the proposed priorities. So this is an opportunity starting in May or June of every year to take a look at what the commission is proposing to look at and make a comment. And you can make a comment on something that's on their proposed list, or you can, for instance, propose that they take a look at something having to do with Chapter 8 of the Sentencing Guidelines, the organizational guidelines, if you have a particular issue that you're interested in. This is your opportunity to reach them. And you can obviously send them public comment and commentary at any time, but this is when they're developing their agenda for the coming year. The comment period will end, and sometime, usually in late summer, August, maybe early September, the commission will then publish its final priorities. This will be after reviewing all the public comment and commentary they've received since May or June, and they'll begin work in earnest in August and September on the proposed amendments and other research and work that they propose that they're going to do for the year. Once that begins, there may be public hearings 
Usually these happen in the beginning of the year, back in 2010, the last time that the guidelines, the organizational guidelines were amended. We had a public hearing at that time, SCCE, what was then ECOA, and others participated in that public hearing and spoke to the commissioners about the proposed amendments. So those sorts of activities will happen at the beginning of the year. Then usually in April, sometimes early in April, sometimes middle of April, there will be a final proposed amendment if there's going to be an amendment on a particular issue, and the commission will vote. And as I mentioned at the top of the this segment, those then proposed amendments to the sentencing guidelines will be sent up to Capitol Hill to Congress on around May 1st. And if Congress doesn't take any action, they become part of the sentencing guidelines. So that's in a thumbnail how this process works. And it happens the same every year. As I said, public comment is always asked for after the proposed priorities are published. But you can contact the Public Affairs Division of the U.S. Sentencing Commission at any time with questions, concerns, suggested priorities that have to do with the sentencing guidelines and compliance. And that contact information is easily accessible on the homepage, the front page at www.ussc.gov. So now that we've got it out of the way, how this process in sort of a quick five minutes synopsis works, what is the likelihood? Is it likely that the sentencing guidelines or organizational sentencing guidelines, particularly those guidelines that have to do with effective ethics and compliance programs, are those going to be amended? And are they going to be amended anytime soon? Well, it's hard to say. As you can probably tell if you look back through the history, there's been very few occasions where the commission has gone back and revisited the organizational sentencing guidelines since 1991 when they were first promulgated. It is almost certain that they will be amended at some time. It is almost certain that the organizational sentencing guidelines and the parameters for what makes a an effective compliance and ethics program will be revised and updated at some point. It's just hard to say when that will be. And I think the fact that the guidelines for organizations have been revisited so infrequently is actually a good sign. The commission has been, I think, a really good steward of these standards. And the important thing about standards, obviously, is you want them to be pretty clear and you want them to be universal and you want them to be well understood. And if there were a lot of amendments, if the Sentencing Commission, for example, tweaked these guidelines on an annual basis, and as you probably weren't aware, if you don't keep up with sentencing guidelines until you heard the first five minutes of this podcast, they could be amended every year, potentially. That would be, I think, not something that would be helpful to the profession and not helpful to having a coherent set of standards for a compliance and ethics program. And the fact that they haven't been amended very frequently, I think, is why they have been so popular, one of the reasons they've been so popular over the years. And that also reflects the fact that these standards need to fit all organizations. They need to work for an organization like Moorhead Compliance Consulting, which is very small. We hope to grow, but we're very small. And they need to work for Walmart or some other multinational with hundreds of thousands of employees and lots of risk and lots of varied risk in the compliance realm. So it has to be a very flexible standard. 
And also the guidelines tend to be very evolutionary, at least with regards to chapter eight of the sentencing guidelines. And I think that's been very good. They reflect the big changes that happen. The amendments in 2004 reflected the changes that had happened since the mid-90s. Uh, the amendments in 2010 reflected the changes that had happened in the back half of the decade, that the clarification that particularly around the role of the compliance officer that many in the industry were looking for. But they're evolutionary, and they tend to not happen again on an annual basis, which I think is a very good thing. And the other thing to keep in mind here, too, is I think there is a recognition by the commissioners over the many years that the sentencing guideline standards for an effective compliance and ethics program set the floor. And there's an expectation that the best practices and what might be a peer standard for your organization's compliance program might have many more components than sort of the bare bones, if you will, that are in the seven hallmarks. But that is the starting point for any organization seeking to have an effective program. Just having, just kind of meeting those standards may not put you in the realm of having, as the Department of Justice has quoted over the last few years, a risk-based program if just meeting those basic standards isn't enough for the risks that you face. So I think that's an important thing to keep in mind, too, about the sentencing guideline standards is they're meant to be a floor and they're meant to work for all organizations. That's why, for example, the sentencing guidelines have avoided specifying the exact relationship between the management of the organization and the day-to-day supervision of the compliance officer. Now, the guidelines are very specific about the person or persons responsible for the compliance program having access to the board of directors or the governing authority of the organization, but they don't make reporting for all purposes, for, for pay, for supervision to the board of directors or the governing authority, because they recognize that many organizations have different ways of organizing their compliance program and their compliance apparatus, and they don't mean to interfere with those very differences depending on the organization. Another thing to look for beyond uh, looking at the priorities in the beginning in May and June of this year to see if anything happens to show up is looking at who President Trump appoints to the Sentencing Commission over the next year. While there are always issues, including multi-year issues that the commission has to deal with that are going to be on the proposed priorities, whomever makes up the membership of the Sentencing Commission, the seven voting members of the commission, whomever those members are, they bring their own set of proposed priorities oftentimes. Right now, there are only two members of the Sentencing Commission that are currently in place. That's the acting chair, Judge Pryor, and Commissioner Rachel Barco. So there are five empty seats right now. So you could have a very significant change at the Sentencing Commission and in the direction of the proposed priorities, depending on who is nominated to serve. The commission is some other independent agencies are also structured this way. The commission is usually evenly balanced, more or less, between Democratic and Republican members. By statute, there can't be more than four of one or the other. So it will be interesting to see who gets nominated and what their background is. 
And whether they have a background in compliance and ethics or some exposure to compliance and ethics, that might cause them to want to put something on the agenda or consider putting something on the agenda to address Chapter 8. One of the arguments that many of us always make to the commission itself, but also to a lot of the stakeholders, is that, quite frankly, the commission touches more individuals, both in the United States and around the world, through the work of Chapter 8 than the individual sentencing that takes up most of the resources and effort of the commission. Because all of us, at one time or the other, either work for or are stakeholders or customers of organizations that have compliance programs. And those compliance programs are very often based on the standards that are produced in Chapter 8 of the Sentencing Guidelines, the hallmarks of an effective compliance and ethics program. That being said, it's hard for the commission because it is a small agency. And while the staff has a lot of expertise, many of the staff have been there for for quite a while and have a lot of institutional knowledge, their primary focus is and, and continues to have to be individual sentencing. Again, I've mentioned this before in other podcasts, just look at the volume. There are at best 200 and maybe a little bit more than 200 in a busy year organizational cases that get sentenced year in, year out. And there are well over 75,000 individual cases that get sentenced year in, year out. So the volume of individuals that come through the criminal justice system at the federal level obviously dictates the amount of resources that the commission has to put forward when considering individual sentencing. That being said, the question as to whether the guidelines will be amended or not and when they might be amended really comes down to who might we see on the commission in the coming year. So keep your eyes peeled. And then again, in May and June, if you go to ussc.gov, the priorities for the coming year will be published at some point and there will be a public comment period for anybody who's interested in responding to the priorities that the commission has laid out. So the last part of the question that I ask at the top of this podcast is, if the sentencing guidelines were to be considered for amendment, if one of the priorities over the coming year or, or one of the following years after that is to examine Chapter 8, what might be on the agenda? Well, one issue that has come up over and over again as a possible candidate for clarification and revision is the discussion of incentives. There is very little said about incentives in the sentencing guidelines themselves other than that they are a requirement of an effective program. Subsection B6 of Section 8B 2.1 of the guidelines says simply that appropriate incentives to perform in accordance with the compliance and ethics program should be part of the program. So that's really all you have is appropriate incentives to perform in accordance with the compliance and ethics program. So there's not a lot of guidance there. What the sentencing commission does when it promulgates a guideline is oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes include what are called application notes. And these are notes at the end of the particular guideline section. And there are plenty of these notes that provide a lot of context for other parts of chapter eight in discussion of how to interpret and what makes an effective compliance and ethics program. So far, that B6 subsection that I just told you about, where it talks about a quote-unquote appropriate incentives, has no application note. So one area you may see some movement in the next couple of years if the commissioners do decide to undertake 
a look at chapter eight is maybe providing some context as to what appropriate incentives means, that term means, and what they might look like. Perhaps provide some broad examples. This would be tough because you obviously don't want to create context or examples that won't work for, again, organizations of all sizes and all creeds. But that is one area, I think, where there is uh, a lot of confusion as to what that might mean. And if there's one area where organizations really struggle with these sort of basic commandments of the seven hallmarks, it is certainly incentives. So if there was to be a revisiting of this part of the sentencing guidelines over the next few years with regards to organizational guidelines, I think that is a very good candidate. The other area that might be under consideration at some point and has been considered at other times is the applicability of the fine part of Chapter 8 to certain offenses that currently aren't covered under the fine provisions. And that would include environmental, some environmental offenses and antitrust offenses. Why that's important when we're talking about compliance is while 8B 2.1 is where most of the information around an effective compliance and ethics program is contained in Chapter 8. There are some provisions in the fine calculation section 8C of the sentencing guidelines that also have to do with what makes up an effective compliance program. In particular, the provisions from 2010 that had to do with giving a organization credit for having direct reporting obligations for the person or persons responsible for the program, the compliance officer, and the board of directors are carved out because they happen to be in this section of the guidelines that isn't applicable for some offenses. So another big potential change is to bring all federal criminal offenses for organizations or some that are currently outside the fine provisions into the fine provisions, which would obviously affect fine calculation, but also would affect the applicability of some of the language around an effective compliance program. You need to keep that in mind, too, when you're building out your program, too, that you don't just look at 8B 2.1. You need to look at the entirety of Chapter 8, in particular 8C, because that's where particularly some of the amendments in 2010, ended up being drafted. So while it's hard to say whether the sentencing guidelines for organizations will be amended here in the near future until we have a better idea of who is going to be on the Sentencing Commission and what their priorities are going to be, I think uh, there are a couple of areas that we might expect would be on the agenda if there was an individual or group of commissioners that were interested in looking at Chapter 8 certainly incentives and possibly further broader application of the fine provisions, including those parts of the fine provisions that have to do with the compliance program to other offenses. Lastly, I want to announce, and I'm very excited to announce, our very first webinar from Moorhead Compliance Consulting. We're titling it Compliance and Remote Workers, Are You Covering Your Risks? As many of you know, uh, teleworking and remote workers are becoming more and more common and obviously present unique challenges for compliance. In this webinar, I'll be joined by my colleague, Beth Vanderslice, and we're going to answer some questions about how to address these challenges. We're going to learn a little bit more about the common risks that you face with remote workers and talk about some key tools that you might use to effectively manage those risks. This webinar is going to be on Wednesday, March 8th, 2017 at noon central time, so 1 p.m., 
Eastern. And you can register on our website or at compliancebeat.com. The upshot this time is when you're asking whether or when the U.S. sentencing guidelines for organizations might be amended, take a close look at the priorities that come out in May or June each year, and also keep a close look on who might be appointed by our new president to the Sentencing Commission in the coming year. As far as what might be amended, I think more talk and guidance around the idea of incentives is probably in order. And there might be some consideration about making the fine section of Chapter 8 more applicable to offenses that are currently carved out. Today, we have three questions with Joe Murphy. For 40 years, Joe Murphy has been a tireless champion of compliance and ethics in organizations and has done compliance work on six continents. Joe has published over 100 articles and given over 200 presentations in 19 countries. He is the author of 501 Ideas for Your Compliance and Ethics Program and a Compliance and Ethics Program on a Dollar a Day. He's a certified compliance and ethics professional and a member of the board of the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics. He has been named the National Law Journal's 50 Governance, Risk, and Compliance Trailblazers and Pioneers in 2014, and he was a recipient of the SCCE Compliance and Ethics Award. Joe and Rutgers professor Jay Siegler wrote the first book on compliance programs, Interactive Corporate Compliance, in 1988, a full three years before the sentencing guidelines for organizations were issued. He was the founder of one of the world's top online compliance training firms, Integrity Interactive, which is now part of SAI Global, and he's the chair of the advisory board of the Rutgers Center for Government Compliance and Ethics. Welcome, Joe. Well, thank you, Eric, and thank you for inviting me to participate. Joe, can you talk a little bit about your career journey? How did you end up in the compliance field? Well, Eric, I've been working on compliance and ethics for about 40 years. I first started work at a company, a Bell company. I was involved in antitrust and antitrust compliance. And one of the things that struck me was that there were people in the company whose job it was to make sure the company did the right thing. Their focus was dealing with competitors. And back then, every competitor had to go through Bell to connect up and reach their their clients. And these were groups within the company who were focused on making sure this happened. So I worked with them. I got involved in antitrust compliance. Then for some rather odd reasons, I got involved in environmental compliance. I did some regulatory compliance. And I started to notice that there was a similarity in the type of work, no matter what the subject area. And that led me to start seeing compliance and ethics as one field. So this process all started back in 1976. I've been developing this first over 20 years working in-house, and then over the last 20 years working outside, helping to start Integrity Interactive, doing consulting work with companies, doing work with the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics. So it's been a long but very interesting trip. I note that you point out that compliance came out of some pretty discrete regulatory areas if you go back 30, 40 years. And there's been this, I hate to use the overused term, but synergistic merging of ethics and ethical culture over the last 20 or 25 years. I think one of the seminal seminal events would be the introduction of ethics in the sentencing guideline standards, which happened not that terribly long ago. 
I'm wondering if you could kind of elaborate a little bit on on that on that evolution of of recognizing the importance of ethics and ethical culture along with having a compliance structure. Why did it take so long? I guess is one question. As a young as, as a person that came to this after that fact, and may, maybe many of our listeners are also of that generation. Why why did that evolution happen, and and why did it take so long? Well, Eric, I have to take it from a different perspective, and that is stepping back and recognizing that this field is really about management. How do you apply sound management practices to get the right result? And while the sentencing guidelines may have added ethics a full 10 years after the guidelines first out, practitioners discovered this much earlier on. I know when I was in-house, when we fully geared up and started a compliance program to meet the sentencing guideline standards in 91, we quickly discovered that if you're going to deal with people, you can't simply say to them, okay, here's the law, follow it. It's too dry. It doesn't appeal. It's not how people relate. People relate to what's right and wrong. So early on in our program, we combined them because we had to. If you're going to reach people, you have to reach them on more than just a dried out, here's the law, don't violate it, because unfortunately, it doesn't inspire people. And also, some people will hear, oh, you mean don't get caught violating it. (laughs) So the ethics part, the values part has been around for a long time. It's just that there was some resistance to combining the two. But certainly from my experience in-house, it was just as logical and natural as could be. You have to have values as part of this. And one other point I'll say, which is a common mistake I see all the time, people don't understand what the law is. They think of the law as these dried set of do's and don'ts. They are not. The law represents values. It represents the values that society chooses to prioritize. If you do not understand the values behind the law, you do not understand the law. So I would say on several points, the guidelines were a marker, but they were not really what caused this to happen. It happened because it had to happen. You Mm. had to combine values with the law. I think that's an excellent point that when you have, again, talking about competition law, for for example, and when you're communicating and educating people about the do's and don'ts, but you don't explain sort of the value behind it, why why it's important for us to have uh, competition law, you lose people. I think that's, that's uh, a com- as you say, a very common mistake. Exactly right. And the competition law is a good example. People have to understand the values behind that. The, the purpose of competition to understand what the law is and to get a feel for how it operates and the types of things that you should and should not do with regard to that law. Yes. Now, if you could go back in time and tell your younger self one thing, one piece of advice before you started in your compliance career, what would that one piece of advice be? This is a really interesting question that I think gets anyone thinking And the conclusion I came up with is that I would tell my younger self exactly the same thing my mom and dad told me when I was younger. That was the importance of persisting, keeping after something. When I was an early advocate of compliance and ethics, I got a lot of pushback. People telling me it would never happen, this is not worth pursuing. I remember talking with one professor 
at my uh, law school alma mater, who is basically telling me, oh, just forget this whole topic. You should go into something else. And people who do compliance work in companies, you hit the same thing. You hit resistance. And it's critical in this area and, in my opinion, any area to understand the importance of persistence in keeping after something that you believe in. No, I think that's that's wise advice, as you say, in any field. But compliance has exploded, if you will, over the last 15 or 20 years. But there are potentially hard roads ahead for individuals, depending on what organization they're in and what crises they face. And I think persistence is probably as good a piece of advice as any to recognize, for instance, the, the whole un- ongoing saga with VW and the, and the individuals inside that organization, including the individual who's been identified as a compliance officer who, according to the affidavits had had misled individuals at the regulatory agencies. It's, you know, being persistent in in recognizing what your role is as a compliance officer is probably more important than it ever was. Yes, I think that's definitely true. And it is certainly true when you're in-house. This can be a difficult area, difficult field, difficult to stick to, but it's critically important. It's important for the company and it's important for the individual personally as well. And related to that, talking about moving forward and using persistence, if you could peer into your ethics and compliance crystal ball over the next couple of years as we head into some uncharted territory here, what do you think one or two important trends are going to be that compliance officers should be aware of? Well, I'll say one that comes from experience over the years, and that is the very safe prediction that there will be new areas of focus and concern. I don't know what they are. I just know there will be because Uh there always are. But another point that I'll cover that I just don't see covered much, and it's actually the topic of a law review article I wrote for the Rutgers University Law Review that's coming out this year, is the conflict in our legal system between compliance and ethics and the efforts to promote compliance and ethics on the one hand, and the existing legal system undercutting that on the other. And people tend not to see this. They tend not to realize it. They tend not to challenge it. Just to throw out a couple examples, a few years ago in Europe, the privacy bureaucracy suddenly discovered helplines because of Sarbanes-Oxley. And by the way, hotlines were not new. It was just that Sarbanes referenced them. And they got into a big fuss, tried to restrict helplines and hotlines, all to the detriment of compliance. In the U.S., we've seen compliance materials used against companies in litigation, unfortunately sending the message to people doing compliance and ethics work that they have to be very careful, things like telling people in training not to take notes. And I see this going on and on, and the people in our field not realizing it. They just tend to be reactive, saying, oh, okay, the Europeans are worried about privacy, so we won't do helplines or we'll restrict them. Mm-hmm. Whereas they should be challenging this and questioning this. It doesn't make sense for the legal system to be putting impediments in the way of corporate efforts to try and prevent and detect misconduct. So I see that trend continuing and something that we all need to be aware of. And it reminds me of a fight that I know both you and Ted Banks have been engaged in for some time now and trying to harmonize, if you will, the approach 
to preventative compliance and ethics programs within the Department of Justice scheme, both uh, at the antitrust level and along with, you know, trying to harmonize how they approach or have approached in the past the importance of compliance and how how that's valued in settlements in particular versus what the other side of the house does uh, at the Department of Justice. And, you know, you, you can very easily get mixed messages if you're an organization that has competition concerns as well as other compliance concerns. Well, if I had been in the Department of Justice, I would have been deeply embarrassed by this directly contradictory approach. In the criminal division, in the environment and natural resources division, they clearly took compliance programs into account. It was not simply a knee-jerk, well, the company did something wrong, so they go down. It was a more intelligent approach of looking, okay, was this an individual or was it the whole company, and specifically focusing on what compliance and ethics efforts they made. The antitrust division simply dismissed it out of hand and said, no, we don't care. Now, the Department of Justice in the Antitrust Division has started to improve their approach and become more conscious of compliance programs and take an approach that's gradually more consistent with the rest of the Department of Justice. And that makes enormous sense, and I hope that they continue to do this because ultimately, the government's leverage on getting companies to do strong compliance programs is that factor, whether the government considers the programs. The antitrust division had no leverage on what companies did in compliance programs. The criminal division did because they considered them. So I I am hoping the antitrust division takes a smarter approach and can help get companies to improve their antitrust compliance programs. And I know, again, you and Ted have been on the front lines of this for, for many years now. It's probably too soon to tell what an Ashcroft Department of Justice might might or might not do, as the chips have not really fallen yet. But do you have, I mean, obviously you hold out hope that there, there might be an opportunity to reexamine those stances. Do you have any sense yet? Often in the department, these types of activities fly below the division below the vision of the Attorney General. There are certain parts of government that the leaders just leave alone. Parts of antitrust tend to be that. The mergers and acquisitions is more a policy piece. Enforcement against cartels typically is left more to the career people. Career guys, yeah. But I am hopeful that just because this is a smarter approach that the antitrust division will continue its change in the right direction, no matter who the attorney general is. Certainly. One can only hope, right? (laughs) Well, one can hope, but one can also take steps to move this along and keep making the point to the policymakers. And may I say for myself, and I'm sure a lot of other folks out there, that we appreciate what you and Ted and, and others have done in that regard. And, and I know, Joe, since we already talked about persistence, I know that you're going to keep it up. <laughs> yes, and it's great working with Ted because Ted is a true believer. He's also been in-house, worked on this, and he's been pushing this issue for a long time, uh, just as I have. Well, we thank you for that and and for many, many other things over the the past few decades that you've been helping guide and develop this profession. I can't thank you enough also for giving us a few minutes of your time to answer our three questions today, Joe. 
Well, I'm happy to do it, Eric. It was uh, it was enjoyable going through these things, and I particularly like the questions about what I would do when I was younger. What advice I would give gave me a chance to relive some of those experiences. So, thank you for having me on your program. It's our pleasure, Joe. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.